right, everybody, welcome to the Virginia Avenue Music Fest at Pioneer. My name's Jennifer Rodriguez. I'm the moderator for Classical Music Indie, and I'm their community programs assistant. We are doing a panel on Why Isn't This Music Dead Yet? A myth-busting panel on classical music. So I have my panel to my right here. We can start with Anju Marie Chandy. She's a phenomenal pianist that performs for us, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about herself. Yeah, I, other than classical music indie, I'm also on the board for Girls Rock Indianapolis, which is awesome. I will rant about that later. Um, and then I am a musician at Howl at the Moon downtown. It's a dueling piano bar with full band fantasticness. It's great. Great. And we can move on to Rob Funkhauser. Yes, the end. Not yet. We have an hour. <laughs> um, so our next panelist is Rob Funkhauser. He is a composer and a percussionist. And he recently, uh, we had one of his compositions performed for us at our Music and Nature performance that Classical Music Indie holds. Is there anything else you'd like to say about yourself, Rob? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sort of, uh, I mean, I work as a composer a lot and work in a lot of spaces that don't typically support classical music. So I try to work with ensembles that are willing to play at bars and, and weird clubs because, um, I mean, those are, those are the kind of gigs you can get where you're going to actually get this music to like, you know, your friends. Um, but I also make weird stuff with like clock chimes and things. So the composition is like one part of a, a wider performance and composition practice that I'm sort of always kind of trying to develop. Awesome. And last, we have Joshua Thompson. Joshua is also a pianist that performs for classical music indie, but he has other things that he does. What else do you do, Josh? I do everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a classical pianist, but also a, uh, a classical and studio trumpet player. So I am a Music Unites artist with classical music indie, and then also I'm the 2019 performer in residence for Eskenazi Health, in addition to being one of the featured artists for Art and Soul. And so I sit on the board of directors for Arts for Lawrence, uh, right by Fort Benjamin Harrison, which just received, I think it was some words of a $2.8 million cultural campus grant. So between now and I think 2022, you'll see a lot of things going on around that area. It's kind of that new cultural destination in the greater Indianapolis area. So I teach um, and then also do a little bit of uh, artistic direction and whatnot and just working with other artists in many different genres and helping them acquire grant funding um, to sustain their, their projects so we aren't coming out of our pocket all the time to do the stuff that we want to do. So Great. So as you guys can see, we have a lot of influential musicians on our panel who are doing some really innovative things in the indie area to bring classical music to the forefront. So we've learned about them. Let's learn a little bit about who's sitting out in the audience. So um, if is anybody sitting uh, out there uh, performing for the Virginia Avenue Music Fest? Great. What, what are you doing? Great. Sweet Poison Victim on Sunday. That's a very cool name. <laughs> uh, is anybody just a listener, maybe not a musician, out in the audience? Very cool. And then who out in the audience listens to classical music already? Oh, lots of hands for classical music. Great. Yay, we got the choir That's today. really good. <laughs> very cool. Well, we'll still get a lot of fun uh, conversation going on today. So um, next question that I have, you can just shout out your answer if you wanted to come up to the front. There's a microphone, but it's a question for the audience. What are some stereotypes that you've heard about classical music, musicians or music? What are some things that you think of that are stereotypical of classical musicians? That's okay. Do you it. Do it. <laughs> no, we, we get rejection and are told that we aren't good enough all of the time in classical music. So, well, thank you. And you ply us with beer, so that's cool. So honestly, you're not going to tell us anything we haven't heard before at least twice since we've gotten up today. Do your worst. <laughs> do it. Do it. Oh, okay. Never mind. You didn't have anything in mind. We're also, the, the whole premise of this is to bust these things. So we won't know what we're busting until you, until you hurt our feelings. <laughs> One of the stereotypes is that it's boring. That it's boring, okay. Bring it. Anything Elitist. else that you've heard? Elitist. Expensive. Expensive. Did you have your hand up? Stuffy and for old people. Okay. Anybody else? 
If that's all you got, we're good, man. That's so we can take those, and I'm going to spin it around to our panel and ask, who's heard of these before? And what is a stereotype of classical music that you wish didn't exist, and how are you actively changing the narrative of the stereotype? So even if it's, if it's one that they addressed or one that you've heard before that you just wish didn't exist, how are you changing it? The worst one to me is that it's boring. And like I, I actually noticed because I started piano lessons like as a little kid, and so I didn't really get into classical music like as an active listener until way later. Like I think I was in high school when I, for the first time, heard something classical and was like, "That's so cool." I was just doing it because people were telling me to do it, and I think it's because I understood it to a deeper level at that point. And so I was at an orchestra concert, and I was. And like I knew the composer and I knew the piece and it made it more interesting. So I think how we can bust that as classical musicians is to like not do the typical, you know, the classical pianist recital. You like are all, you just walk on stage, you bow, you play, you bow, you leave. <laughs> like talk to people, be like, hey, this composer fell out of an airplane when he was 42 years old. <laughs> I don't know, like like give him some stuff. <laughs> Who, which composer is that? I forgot. Um, give them some stuff to like link on to, and then they'll like know what to listen for. Like I recently gave a performance, and I was like, "Hey, this is what a hemiola is. It's a two versus three pattern." And like I taught the audience what a hemiola was. Look it up. It's so interesting. H e m i o l a, hemiola. It's my favorite thing. And then they were like listening for it, and. That's a music theory lesson. It's super interesting, and it showed them my personality. I got the best applause I've ever gotten <laughs> at a recital. So, Does anybody ha answer. else have anything that they wish wasn't a stereotype in ways that they kind of change it, like Anju just said? Kind of incorporating, like, it's not boring because we can, we can show you more about it. I hear a lot of specific to to people who are in my, in my community, like the black community, is like, oh, classical music doesn't have any soul to it. And I really hate that because it, it has a lot of it. And you, I think it's very obvious when you listen to it. I think it also depends on, I find it an interesting comment to say because how can you say that an entire genre has no soul when it's physically impossible to listen to the entirety of you know, what is out there, right? If you only know five different names, granted those five composers might be soulless, but you know, there's so many other ones that are out there and so I think for me, I always like to look at other synonymous adjectives, you know, rather than saying soul, okay, well, you might not find soul in it, but there's definitely passion in it, there's definitely intensity, there's definitely a sense of urgency and direction where this music is going, and so maybe if we just substitute one word for the other, it gets us closer to a very human thing that you listen to music and it stirs something in you regardless of the genre. And classical music definitely is, is no exception to that regard at all. And secondly, it's got a whole lot of soul, so you just not listen to the right shit. What about you, Rob? Do you have any input on the stereotypes and changing them? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the stuffiness one is a good one because a lot of people feel like classical music is, is unapproachable and a lot of times, frankly, like the institutions that drive classical music, namely like schools, which are necessary, like, you know, if you're a classically trained pianist, like, you've spent a lot of time in a music school. It influences how you think about things. Or, like, if you're a composer like me, you spend a lot of time hating those things. And, like, um, or, you know, I don't I hate music schools, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, no, really, what it, what it comes up is, like, these things that, like what you were saying with talking uh, between th songs and things, like, these are things that don't actually get brought up a ton, like, Concerts are like especially big big concerts like orchestras and stuff are so formal and they're there It's like you go there and you like sit in silence and like that's not always a cool hang like that's not a fun thing to do I mean granted some music deserves it, you know certain pieces. It's just like yes They're doing so much stuff in it that like sit in silence for an hour and enjoy this but you know chamber music like that entire genre started because like you know, people wanted to write music for living rooms. Like, string quartet took off because you could fit it in a living room with no furniture. Like, these things, uh, they're, they've become institutionalized and codified in a way that, like, they used to just be, like, people hanging out and making music. And now it's this, like, super institutionalized thing that feels very inaccessible. And, like, even as a person who practices it, a lot of it feels inaccessible. Like, I will probably never have a piece played by orchestra, and that's just the real thing. Um, even though, like, you grow up listening to these big orchestra words. The barriers to entry are, are a lot, you know, especially if you don't want to be super stuffy and formal and 
base your life around that kind of thing. Do you have something else you want to say? Yeah, kind of going with the, I think stuffy, boring, soulless all kind of become this conglomerate that's just like, yep, that's classic music for you. <laughs> you know, we respect it, but I'm not going to listen to it. As it relates to it being boring, I find one of those things that, that, that bothers me a little bit is if you think about just the history of music and just people in general, think before TV, think before radio, like you were saying, everybody played piano. Everybody played guitar, but why? Because those were your video games. Those are that's what you did to pass the time. That was how you. Uh, that was entertainment. And as we get further with the advent of technology, making everything very rapid fire and making things uh, more prone to instant gratification, it reminds me of whenever you're looking through and scrolling through on Facebook and you read these articles or don't read them because it's like seven minute read or this is a two minute read. <laughs> and if it's like longer than seven minutes, you're like, well, uh, I'm not going to read, you know, seven minutes. I feel the same way about classical music where that is one of the barriers, right? Where what is being said and what is being performed, the entire work might be 24 minutes. So how often do we, in our current present time now, how often do we stop and take 20 minutes to read an article or to listen to something intently, like active listening, right? And so I think that is somewhat a barrier of classical music, not because it's classical music's fault, it's because the way that we consume entertainment and whatever else, specifically in Western cultures, is not very kind to artistic presentations that require us more than 30 seconds to get to the point, yet we wonder why we're so emotionally stunted, unable to articulate with any type of, you know, consistency, feelings, and all that type of stuff. And so that's kind of the challenge between technology, genre, artist, artistry, and how we package. But I think it's a fun challenge, and I think that's one of the reasons why this this genre will get to be and will remain so influential and relevant because it's a new challenge to kind of overcome and figure out how do I repackage something that people don't think they have an interest in, but you really do, and it, can I get it done in under two minutes? And if not, how long can I keep my audience's attention? I think yeah. I think what you're saying is really relevant to what Anju was saying about if if something is 24 minutes, if that's just the way that it is, then maybe we need to find a different way to relate it to the people and make them have a reason to like hook on to what we're talking about as classical musicians. So kind of going off of off of that conversation, how do we make it relatable? Let's talk about some of our dreams and some of our ideas about what we would like to see come out of classical music today, how we can make it relevant in Indianapolis. So my next question to the panel is, if you could have unlimited resources, what would be a dream collaboration for you with musicians of any genre? What could a collaboration between classical and non-classical musicians look like to kind of break that barrier that we see? And that's open to anybody. We were just talking about the classical and hip hop fusion being so cool. Like I wish wish we could do more of that. I wish people who were involved in like local symphony orchestras had more of a hand in like hip hop communities. Honestly, you know who does a really good job is um, Yo-Yo Ma. He freaking collaborates with everybody, world music, like pop music, Everybody, and he's just like, that's why he's the most famous cellist alive, probably, because he has that collaboration thing down. So I think that's a great model to follow. Do either two of you have a, like a dream collaboration that if it could go with any genre, unlimited amounts of money, anything? So it's a hard question to answer because we never dream about if I had unlimited amounts of money, because we know it's not gonna happen. We just know it's not. Kind of along the same lines, uh, like Anju was saying, I know for me, because the majority of my peers, friends, contemporaries who are uh, musicians and artists tend to be in the hip-hop, soul, neo-soul, funk uh, genre. Uh, and I think for the longest time, I kept trying to fit into that as a classical pianist. I'm like, where do I fit? And the reality is, I'm like, no, you, you, you do. And so I think there's a lot to be said for just letting the organic creative process, just kind of just let it be, and people will find you and you find them, right? So not forcing it, but if I had unlimited monies. Um, you do. Imaginary I, good. money right to you right good. now. So for me, it's I would love to see and love to work with any genre of music, but also outside of music. I'm really big on incorporating film, dance, um, spoken word, anything that you kind of see as artistic, right? Or even sculpture and installations that use technologies and everything else. To me, that's always fun. And I think that's kind of the key to it. It's like, okay, so if you don't like classical music, cool, don't come for that. 
but we've got something that visually stimulates you. Or if you're not into the visual, we've got something that hits your auditory or maybe your olfactory or maybe your, like honestly, I would like to work with chefs and design, you know, full course meals or concepts around, you know, fine classical music that's indigenous to the area in which you're cooking from and how, you know, those things that are very, I hate things that hit stuff on the nose because it doesn't require the audience to think, and I think that's the problem. We don't think anymore. We, we always want to present it in a very matter-of-fact way and work for it, shit. Like, that's how you appreciate it that much more, and I think that sparks innovation, and that takes less of the responsibility off the artist and the genre and puts it back to the consumer of said art to kind of think creatively about how this is supposed to work what it looks like and sounds like when it works well, and even maybe when it doesn't. And if it doesn't, that's not a problem either. So, so this is a conversation between all of us, right? We can we can talk back and forth with the audience. Is anybody uh, does anybody have a career that doesn't relate to music, but they think it would be really interesting if it related to music? Yeah. Medical You're in the medical field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this is the medical field something that we that any of you have uh, worked and collaborated with before, or have been interested in doing? Well, I do it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kyle Long's in the audience, and uh, uh, I, Kyle's just a, a phenomenal cultural curator here in Indianapolis. Just period. So I'll just throw that out there. But like I said, I'm the 2019 performer in residence at Eskenazi Hospital through the Mayor and Tobias Music Program. And, and that's exactly what it speaks to is, you know, music is being that therapeutic element, um, not just for the patients who are there, but for the people who are there and even the people who work, right? And even the design of the hospital is meant to be much more open, bright colors, and just uh, taking away said stigma, taking away said whatever else we associate with hospitals, healthcare, and whatever else to make it more of a holistic and uplifting thing. I, I believe like next year, they're working on getting more of that to the units themselves. But what I will say that kind of works against it a little bit is I think here in, in Indiana or just in general, music therapy, you can't build Medicaid for. And so it's one of those where it's not necessarily that the desire is not there and that there aren't people here who are willing to do it, but we, we continue to play catch up or wait for legislative bodies and other things to to catch up with the actual science and empirical evidence that is there that shows that these are evidence-based practices that do work so i mean until then we'll figure it out and i've gotten kicked out of many a places for doing stuff like that for that reason you have to find me first (laughs) so um but yeah to your point i think it is important to do that is there anybody else out in the audience who does something other than music a career that's different than music yeah. Great. Rob, do you have any input on unlimited amounts of money, anything you can do that you dream that you could do? As a composer, I think about this almost constantly. No, I actually have one very specific, like, there's a, there's a hyper-specific one that I had a parallel experience too. So I was really lucky last year, um, Michael Raintree did a, a residency, or Oyo Jones, uh, with his Michael Raintree project, did a residency out at the state hospital, the old uh, state hospital, and he was, uh, I think, performer in residence or artist in residence, something. And uh, so I wrote string quartets for a whole arrangement um, or a whole record of his, and they did it live. But this is really funny because the dr- the, one, the record that I would score with full rec full orchestra and choir is actually the last Oreo Jones record. Like the first time I heard that record, I was like, I want a giant choir and a giant orchestra in a giant cathedral. And I want this to happen. (laughs) But uh, So yeah, I mean, I think about this kind of stuff all the time, you know, like eventually like, you know, one of my pipe dreams is to start pairing uh, chamber musicians with, uh, with like local singer songwriters and things, because one thing that Indianapolis does have, is we have this like wicked interlaced culture of singer songwriters that like they're covering their own tunes. These tunes evolve. It's like I mean it is very like sort of 
this distinct sort of like little folk language we have that exists, actually it used to exist kind of just in Fountain Square. It has since, you know, spread out with the changes to the neighborhood, but like, but there are these like little micro traditions that exist and, and develop and, uh, and I really want to tap into that and bring, and bring things into it. So if I had unlimited money, I would just like work with those guys all the time and like make pretty arrangements. So this festival is probably pretty relevant to what you like. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. So uh, a question we had for the audience members, too, is has anybody in the audience collaborated with classical musicians, and what was that experience like? Has anybody done any collaborations? Like, there's a band in the back. Have you done anything with classical music musicians before? Other Not than really. practice at my house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so more of like a casual casual collaborations. <laughs> uh, well, if you haven't done collaborations, how would you like to see classical music incorporated into, into areas in Indianapolis, places you haven't seen it before and would like to see it, types of music or types of careers that you'd like to see collaborated? Yeah. Rob, do you have any input on that? Because you actually recently did a park collaboration with us. Oh, yeah. So um, we, we've done the thing at Fort Benjamin Harrison State Park uh, in the last two years. So last year was the first one. This year is the second one. It's We're sort of in the middle of it. We're between the first and second performances, which that's huge. As a composer, having a work played more than once is actually like a big deal because there's a lot of us and we're always foisting our things on performers. And a lot of us have no consideration for the fact that performers have lives. And so working with composers becomes kind of annoying. So, uh, no, I'm very lucky. Like, so this, this project is, it w happens at a shelter in uh, Fort Benjamin Harrison State Park. I would love to see it at a bunch of different parks, but it does take a lot of resources. So, you know, I spend, you know, several months writing the piece. And it's a site-specific piece. So, like, this year... I, it's like seven, well, it'll be like 15 sets of wind chimes that are all tuned together uh, that drone throughout the whole piece. And um, so I'm I build things like that. And then music boxes that play these melodies that go along with the piece. So it's very much like it's an experience for that place, for that little shelter. And we've sort of been like last year was a big learning experience. So there were there were things that didn't work. We lost sheet music to the wind. You know, there's just like there's a lot of, lot of snafus. And but then so this year is like man, that wind is gnarly out there. I'm going to use wind chimes because <laughs> I know those will work. And, uh, and so, yeah, you learn, but, it's all, but it is a, a pretty great way. And I agree that it's a really nice way to engage with public spaces. Like, I think music in public spaces um, is really important. Absolutely. I think that's great. And they also have a nice piano at their art center, which is vastly underutilized. Yeah. What is it like as a pianist to, to do collaborations? And so like when we go to Eskenazi, there's a piano. What, what is it like as a pianist with such a large instrument to, uh, to do collaborations and to make that all work out? Oh, you have to be so flexible because you don't know what the quality of the, the instrument is going to be like. You don't even know if it's a real piano. <sighs> I'm not going to get into that. But yeah, so I don't know. I think it's fun, though. I do a lot of keyboard lugging, so I do have my keyboard, and like that's fun. I don't know. The nice any thing, any yeah, <laughs> about being a pianist, they they typically, if they're a professional pianist, will have their own, and they can take it to locations. Both of you, so that's been a way that they um, have been able to to do collaborations, like at hospitals and at at parks and situations like that. Okay, next question panelists, what do you think the similarities and differences are between classical musicians and musicians of other genres? Well, um, 
I, I think when we're working with other classically trained musicians, I, if, if we look at music as being kind of this universal language, then the different types of genres could be considered dialects, right? And so I think that's one of the, the benefits of working with other classically trained musicians is we're all starting from a very a common language. So when we're re rehearsing pieces or thinking or conceptualizing, we have that, and that's a huge benefit provided that you're in said circle of, of classically trained musicians where it's a, a push and a pull working within and outside of those genres and not even a bad thing, right? It's just, that's where we just have to learn to be a little bit more flexible and kind of bust out the thesaurus or be a little bit more handsy and gesture to figure out, okay, if I'm working with folks who are no less talented than I am musically, but maybe don't have the same dialect or frame of reference that I do, then how do our two kind of worlds collide or a little bit or how do we kind of bridge that gap and it's completely possible it's totally possible i work with a lot of visual artists i work with a lot of dancers where you know especially for dance they're used to an eight count they're used to this that and the other or they'll pinpoint minute markers in music and not speak in musical terms but speak in terms of movement and body and language for me as a musician thinking about those things not necessarily from my frame of reference that i know of but more from a anatomical perspective, it helps. It helps me shape movement in my, in my music as well. So there's benefits there. It's just kind of figuring out there's certain languages that I don't understand. I have a, a brother who is a phenomenal composer and jazz saxophonist. My improv chops are shit. Like they're terrible, they're horrible. Like I'm that dude who's sitting there and I will write out one, three, five, and seven, and nine, because I have to and my solos are crazy remedial, but thankfully I'm working with other musicians who make me sound a whole lot better than what I actually am in doing it. And so I think it's recognizing and understanding strengths and weaknesses and not being afraid or upset about your weaknesses, working on those and working with people who can help you get better at those, but also maximizing your strengths when you're coming from a classical perspective or you have to work with uh, a group that does rock or that does folk or does this, that, and the other. It's totally possible and it's totally beneficial for everybody. I gotta say, I like that you said different dialects instead of different languages, and that's where I think we get in trouble a lot because we pigeonhole musicians into, you're a classical musician, you're a jazz musician, whatever. It's, it's the same language, yeah. We might speak different dialects or have different accents or whatever, but I mean, if you think about it, like if you just throw yourself into a group of people who don't listen to the same music as you, you leave having like new albums to listen to, new song ideas to listen to, like a new, I don't know, like palette of colors to work with, you know? Like, I don't know, I, I wish, I kind of like, I did not like this question, I think, because it like made me feel very strongly about stuff, but like, yeah, I just, I don't like pigeonholing myself personally. Like, my goal by the time I'm on my deathbed is to be the encyclopedia pianist. I want to know every genre and like be able to hang at any gig or, you know, anything. Pretty so, much so would you say that you feel like an internal poll when I'm asking what's the difference between a classical musician and a non-classical musician? You're like, I'm like, nothing. There's <laughs> no difference. I wish there was no difference. There, in practice, there is. Like, we treat these people very differently and we sometimes separate ourselves because we think we speak a different language, but yeah, music is the universal language. There's no reason to not make everything fusion, you know? How do you feel about that question, Rob? I think a lot of times, a lot of experience for me is uh, different expectations when you walk into the room. So I finished up my master's a couple years ago, and the only reason that's significant is because during that time I also played in a bunch of bands as a drummer. And the expectations on a personal level is like those bands, like bands, like a rock band, just like memorized it a lot of times. Like those guys like would be like, they would, you know, if they had saw like a piece of sheet music, they'd be like, oh, that's, that's really complicated. It's like, and they just don't know it because it wasn't part of their training. But like these guys, you know, will stand there and memorize 40 minutes of music, like no, cause they don't have any other way. And that's like, you ask somebody to do like, you know, hey, memorize this 40 minutes of like, you know, string quartet music and then deliver on that, like that is, that's a bonkers thing. Like you would have to ask them to work for a long time. Um, so I do think, and like students, especially classical music students, this is not for, for once, once people get to the professional level, you get to deal with real human beings. But, uh, but like students will often, it's like, 
you know, there are guys in garages that are delivering 40 minutes of music, and then there are students who are complaining about learning 10 minutes. And so I do think the expectations and like sort of sometimes some entitlement comes with classical musicians where they're like, I am entitled <laughs> to a little bit of deference because I'm a classical musician. I'm not saying, no, I'm no, not no, saying no. this all the time. Like, I'm not saying this about you. Fight, I'm just fight, saying, I, fight. Am, I, am, I, I, I get But it. that 10 minutes, though, was the most ridiculous 10 no, minutes of crap. I agree, that, I agree with that, too. I think that's uh, all things equal. I, I also think composers are very guilty of, like, handing someone. It'll be like, I took two years to write this 10 minutes of music, and I calculated it all based on the orbits of the planets. <laughs> Do you think you could uh, sight read this for me? And it's like. Black ink everywhere. It makes no sense. Concerts in two days. Yeah. <laughs> so I do acknowledge that's a problem on so, my end. So what are ways that we can make it work together with them? So I, you know, with with any partnership or collaboration, and I say this all the time, and I don't care what you're doing, music related, artistic related or not, I, I'm a big proponent of not sticking square pegs in round holes. If it doesn't fit, don't force it. Like, just don't. There are a lot of people that I still want to work with and I tell them all the time, I'm like, absolutely, we will get to it. I don't believe in rushing anything. And when it's an organic fit, we will know it. Because if you rush that, it's a disaster every time, every time. Because I think sometimes when we, we try too hard to make it fit, it's never going to as opposed to, I think that's the beauty about music and just jam sessions and stuff like this is, things come up serendipitously that is just absolutely perfect. And you have to know yourself as an artist or a musician, and you have to know the people that you want to work with intimately well. There's, I see a couple of them who actually just walked in. There's some folks who I've wanted to work with for a while. I haven't listened to their stuff enough to figure out how I fit in. To me, that's disrespectful to them to want to hop on some of their stuff without having the knowledge of where they're coming from. Who cares where I'm coming from, right? They can find that stuff out later. But I've got to do my due diligence to make sure that this is a, a, a respectful partnership and me being elitist about it isn't going to help. However, to that point, <laughs> what I will say, I think one of the reasons why classical musicians have the uh, maybe reputation of being difficult to work with or maybe everyone just expects us to be, the one thing I can't stand, I'm like, oh, you're a genius. I'm like, nope, I've been doing this for three decades. Like, I, there's, it's not genius, it's just like neurotic compulsion <laughs> and, and stubborn dedication and that's nothing more. But the classical genre is ridiculously unforgiving, very unforgiving. You can be a phenomenal uh, musician and you take tons and tons of auditions. I think the success rate for booking an audition with the symphony orchestra is, it, it's easily over one over 50, right? And so for us, it's one of those where you try, 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 and you do this and you're not getting either gigs or you're not getting apprenticeships or you're not getting um, opportunities for arbitrary reasons, but the slightest change in pitch, definitely a wrong note, or even just the style that you play and what you play not fitting what whoever you're auditioning for does not fit. It doesn't mean that you suck in your garbage, but the way that we internalize that is, is, is we're incredibly hard on ourselves. And so sometimes I think we project a lot, and a way of projecting is that perfectionist mentality, but turn that inside out, it's really just low self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it's, I don't think it's any different than any collaboration. There are guitarists and, and other musicians in this room who could mop the floor with me, and I have a lot to learn. So rather than seeing it as kind of like one being better than the other, it's like, no, you, you look at life and come at things from a very different perspective. As we work together, we come a little bit closer to, to the middle ground, and then we figure out what my lane is and how we function and what this new collaborative work is either supposed to look like or, or whatever. Does that make sense to anybody? Y'all quiet as I'll get out. Quiet. They're just listening intently. <laughs> so we've made it quite a, quite a bit into this conversation, and you may have some questions or ideas stirring. So this is kind of a point where I want to just open up the floor. Does anybody have any questions they would like to ask or um, any ideas? Yes. Absolutely. Um, me personally, yes, but also it's, it's been done already in mainstream. Um, Janet Jackson, it wasn't her Velvet Rope, but it was either the album before or after it. She samples Eric Satie's Gymnopede Number 1, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. It's in there. She's done it. 
to me, I consider that to be a collaboration, right? It might not be, you know, one composer's been dead, right? But she resurrects something else, very catchy, very simple, not trying to be something that it's not, and it fit the aesthetic that she was going for. And so I think that's one of the things I really, and Anju and I were talking about this earlier, that we just get so excited about and want to do is, because there's so much music that's out there in the classical realm from composers that are underperformed and underrecognized to the ones that we always hear all the time, chop and screw it. That stuff is sampleable as all get out, right? I mean, and I think it's a wonderful way of making classical music relevant today and kind of reframing it, but it also gives, for lack of a better word, and it's a horrible one to use, but other more poppy, more I don't know, more relatable or familiar genres, it keeps them, it, it anchors them in a, as the establishment would call it, a very traditional and legitimate style of music. You can do both. But it also adds a little bit more of heft and historical relevance to what's new and familiar, and it kind of keeps us in business because we would love to play samples on stage over and over and <laughs> over. Trust me, we would. Fun fact, one of the, I just found out like one of the most sampled sounds in hip hop is like this orchestra hit, which is actually like a Stravinsky. It was, you know what I'm talking about. Right of Spring, like, I think. Y- yeah, the infer- Infernal Dance yep. movement. Yeah, it's like this orchestra hit. And like literally it's still, it's on the top 40 charts right now, I guarantee. Like it's everywhere. So like collaboration is just yeah I feel like that's a natural flow of things I think the fact that we don't collaborate is like going against the flow of what's natural so yeah yeah a lot of times in these kind of projects like you know like the string quartet project they did that I mentioned earlier like I was very much acting as a translator so like even though my other practice as a composer is basically working as an arranger so I mean in a lot of cases I think that can help serve things like if you have somebody who's just like gonna dig in and figure out what's there and and bring that out then like um, you can sort of make it easier on everyone involved Um, I also do want to give a shout out to Majuscule here because she just shout she did the Noisathon recently and she has redone several classical works in her own electronic style and it's awesome so she's already doing this I think it's a really good example for this city but yeah, I mean, I think that just like finding the right team of people can make things go a lot more smoothly. But to that point, I think one of the, the biggest reasons why it, it, it's not that people don't want to do it. Like, I don't think we've said it a single original thought up here yeah. all afternoon. And <laughs> just we, we, we have it. Um, passionate, but not original. We, we literally are just probably the smallest representation of classical, classically trained musicians that are in this city. Like there, there are so many. And so... I plug classical music indie any time that I can, and the way they actually start, I actually started working with them of all places was at the Melody Inn, I think two and a half years ago, and it was, the entire night was nothing but a mashup night, and so I was playing with another flute player, and before us was a punk metal band, and after us was a hip-hop duo, and the entire night slapped like crazy, and so, and I've been working with classical music ever since. But I think a lot of it has to do with most people don't know who we are. A lot of people are like, I'd love to have a violinist. I'd love to have a cello, but who plays cello here? And if you're not into even social media links with people who are, then you're not going to find them, right? And so I think that's what it comes down to is it's not just us being more transparent too, but also from events like this, which what, what might be lacking in what we would consider robust attendance, we definitely get to make up for with sound and audio that gets to be run back over and over from this, so this will still reverberate later. But there's sign-up sheets, there's email lists for Classical Music Indie. They have an entire roster of several dozen classical musicians in almost every instrument, so you can actually figure out, I need a noble player, I need a pianist, I need a, you know, whatever else. We're here, we're accessible, we will let you know what our rates are, what our websites are, and also it gives us an opportunity to figure out who everyone else is in the performing arts community here in Indianapolis because we have ambitions and things that we want to do that is within and outside of uh, the classical music wheelhouse. Just to throw out a quick point, I think a reason for that separation is because it's just classical and jazz that are in the institution right now. We only study classical and, and jazz is recent in we the institution. We don't even do justice to those two. I know, right? Well. <laughs> in uh, public schools, we so just we should, don't. I mean, why are we not studying the rich history of like black music in our country for real? Like, was it, um, what composer said, 
jazz is the true American music. Oh my God, who was that? All of them. <laughs> There's like a quote. All of them said that. Was All it, of them should have said that. Was it Dvorak? Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, like we don't, why don't we study that? You know, like why, or well, we study jazz, but like other forms of that music, um, world music in general, you know, like why is that not studied? And I think that keeps classical musicians in the institution, hanging out with their music school buddies, and then they <laughs> can't get to I'm like. I'm gonna say one thing and I'm gonna let yeah. Rob have it. I mean, and to that point too, so for me as a classical pianist, I've, I've spent seriously decades playing the Mozarts, the Beethovens, my favorites were, you know, Debussy and Ravel and Stravinsky and all that type of stuff and Shostakovich. I love those, but kept from me, hidden from me, unbeknownst to me growing up since age five and playing was I was uh, 20-something years old before I even knew a single black uh, classical composer. There's a lot of them. And so for me, like for the last two and a half, three years, and honestly until fingers fall off I'm not playing Europeans anymore I'm just I'm not gonna do it I've done that and so I exclusively program and learn the masterworks of composers of African descent there are so many of them they a lot of them predate Mozart a lot of them you know Beethoven got his swag from them right and we don't hear them and I think that that definitely has to change and there are times when I go and I'm waving that black people banner all the time, but there's other stuff too where I'm just like, I'm just gonna do it. You know, wherever I am, I'm just very intentional about it. Cause someone will always ask me, who played that piece? I'm like, well, I'm glad you asked. It's so-and-so, I don't know who that is. I'm like, I know you don't. Cause I didn't know who they were three years ago either, right? And then to see their entire catalog and to listen to the stuff that is super sampleable for certain genres because certain groups of people had a certain experience coming to this country and living in this country and why they might not have verbalized it, it is forever archived in their compositions. And to ignore that is horseshit. And it's completely disrespectful to the genre in general and if we want to have this comprehensive understanding and respect for not just our history, but just the evolution and the, the impact that this genre has on, uh, on the world period. So that's my soapbox, I'm gonna step off of it. Do you want to step on it, Rob? <laughs> Thank you. Oh. Clap again. <laughs> Clap for that shit again. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, what, he, what he was just saying was really, was really cool. I mean, I think there is, you know, as, as a composer, you know, sometimes you question whether or not you're even necessary because of the amount of music that's actually been made. But I, as far as classical music goes, like, none of us do this without some sort of, like, fanatic dedication that comes from somewhere that I don't really know how to explain. It's, like, a, it's a mental illness. Yeah, it, it really is. Actually, I kind of think about it as like more of a heroin addiction yeah. than a fun thing to do. <laughs> um, so, so like, uh, so that's, that is one thing that we all have in common, but the, but the, but people grow up and, and they learn Mozart and Beethoven and all this stuff. And it's like, there's so much more out there that like, um, just sidestepping it and doing whatever, like, you know, um, and also just like, I think we always lose sight, at least for me, like the composition world is a little different than the, than the performance world a little bit, like, because we're coming on the backs of these like super cerebral idiots from the 20th century that completely changed, like bent the institution towards this like hyper complex, like intellectually, I guess, stimulating music, it's not. It's boring, and it's and it's. It was written in a bar. Yeah, right, <laughs> by right, drunks right, like, who were. Exactly. So, so like you know, like for me, it's like uh, as a composer, I'm trying to find things like, like composition is a vehicle for like human interaction and experience, and like, and so you kind of have to like make your own way in that, and that's like, I don't know, it tempers the way I write music for sure. Like I used to be really into like. I mean, I, I like listening to some of that comp, some of it, but like you guys have lives, right? So like, it, like if I hand you a really complex piece, that's like hours and hours of work for like what, you know? I mean, like, I could have made it less complex, um, you know? Like that, like that thing, that kind of thing. Things I think about all the time about, but it also means that like, I feel as a composer, I have a responsibility to make things that make sense to be programmed. Here's a piece that like might be kind of fun to play, like you know what I mean? Like I like doing that and I like experiencing it and might be fun to listen to. Like I don't think that anybody's gonna like go home and jam like my electric triangle shit, but like they might they might like the experience of having seen it, you know? I, I don't know. So yeah, it's a weird world for me as a composer coming on the backs of all of these traditions. And for me, like 
I, if I never heard Mozart or Beethoven again, like, I would die happy, probably. Like, the, uh... <laughs> I'm leaving. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, with them on that. I kind of, like... <laughs> but, 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 I'll, oh, sorry. One more thing, I'll let you go. Like, I mean, for me, no, for I'm me, it's just like... To say, I was just going to cry into the microphone. No, it's okay. Uh, no, for me, like, there's, there's all these, there's all these people that have made amazing music since then, and, like, you know, and you're into the, the the composers of African descent, which is something I don't know anything about, and is woefully underrepresented in the institution. I'll be the first one to say that as well. But like, you know, for me, it's like weird dudes from like West Virginia that like wrote some tunes that I like. You know, it's like finding these like weird little niches, and it's like, it we're all getting crowded out. People who are alive or recently dead are getting crowded out by people who died in the 1800s, and it's insane. So we've come a long way in the in from from the question. No, it's okay. We. We we've we've started talking about things that have become relevant. They've obviously like they're they they're interesting to the the way that we got through the conversation. But I would say that what we can take from everything that we've said is that there are ways that that people collaborate that we don't know about yet, and that can be like grabbed onto more in the indie area, and like people that can be represented more. There can be ways that we can collaborate more with each other, and we've covered a lot of that ground. Are there any more questions from the audience about? about anything pertaining classical music, Ooh. collaboration. Did you have something you were going to say? I was going to say, did, did Andrew want to defend Mozart or Beethoven? Because I think he should have a chance. We can also have that competition. It's okay. <laughs> we can take this outside and fight after the, after the panel. <laughs> but for the audience, is there anybody that had any other questions? Yes. Okay, yeah, we are, so not going to lie, we're kind of like a newer Girls Rock. I just went to the Girls Rock Camp Alliance conference, like the worldwide conference. Indianapolis has a great Girls Rock program, but it's like a baby compared to a lot of the other ones. They've, they're very developed. So like, For those of us who don't know what Girls Rock oh. is, could you explain what it is too? Yeah, good idea. So um, in Indianapolis, what we do is we've got two weeks of camp over the summer. This summer it's in... July. I really should know the dates. I'm terrible. But it's a week-long camp, and then there's a second session. Girls ages 9 through 16, and it's actually uh, gender-expansive, gender-nonconforming, non-binary students as well come in. Maybe they don't have any experience playing music whatsoever. They just signed up for camp. And we put them in a band, like a rock band setup. We have them come up with a band name, band logo, write a song, and perform the song at the end of the week at a showcase. It's freaking cool. I wish I had this. Like as a kid. It's so empowering. And weirdly enough, it's not a music camp. We call it an empowerment camp. Like it's not about, so me, I'm a music teacher. That was like, I've been doing it for like longer than I've done anything is teaching music. And I have to go there and shut the fuck up so that these girls can like, or these young musicians can like actually be creative and do what they want to do. Like I'm not even there. I don't touch an instrument the whole week I'm there. (laughs) Like it's great. I'm just there to be like, you rock, you can do it. And um, yeah, so that's what Girls Rock is for us. Um, I've been volunteering with them for four years now. I'm on the board now. What I really like about that model that Girls Rock uses, that classical uh, music education does not use, is this sense of like jam, like jamming and creativity, like find your own sound. Don't worry so much about sheet music, about technique. And I I found, like, when I teach young students, I use the Girls Rock model to kind of, like, I'm hands-off about it. I try to be the mirror so that the student can find their own mistakes and fix them if they so choose. It's not about right versus wrong. Like, I was taught by my old cat lady teachers growing up. Like, it's, it's about, like, finding your own voice, figuring it out for yourself. If you, if a student wants to learn sheet music and they ask me, I'll teach them, but like, that's not what I emphasize at first. Like, it's a lot more listening, um, collaboration. I try to get my students to like collab with other students of mine and form like little rock bands or little chamber groups. And I think Girls Rock does that really well. Like we're, we've got so many ideas about how to incorporate like, um, genre different genres of music and actually this summer should be really interesting we've got a different lunch band that comes in every day of camp so the girls walk like after they're finished eating lunch they get to listen to some local musicians and like 
we've got like j- solo jazz saxophone uh we're gonna have some classical music indie stuff i gotta get on that um <laughs> we got like all kinds of singer songwriters in there and like it just oh my gosh it's so great it's lovely if you want to volunteer let me know how many out in the audience have heard about girls rock before great how many have heard about classical music indie before the today some hands are up, some hands are down. So there's ways that classical music is being presented in the community maybe that we didn't know before today. A lot of us did, thankfully. Another question that I have, does anybody in the audience have another question before I give one of my last questions to the panel? Yeah. Uh, your favorite room to perform in? Oh, that's a good question. Favorite place, favorite room in town to perform? I don't think I've found it yet. I have places where I'm like, ooh, if only, if only. Um, I, well, okay, I'll give you my top two. Uh, top one is the Cabaret on uh, Pennsylvania. Never given a performance there, but those people are so cool. Like, uh, I will call them up and be like, hey, I've got a performance, and I need a dope piano to practice on enduring regular day hours. They just let me go and just, and it's cool. Just because the aesthetics of the place are insane and I feel like I'm actually a professional somebody <laughs> when I'm in there, right? Uh, but I would love to perform there one day. And I think the other, hmm, I'd have to say, um, wow, uh, the Circle Theater. Um, I've had the, the fortune in my lifetime as a pianist and as a trumpet player to play there um, several times and for me locally here. There's nothing like it, but I'd also be remiss not to point out uh, the piano at Eskenazi, mainly because any place that's public that has a piano, even if it's roped off, I'm climbing underneath the ropes, and I'm going to play on that shit until I get kicked off. Have any to touch time, it. <laughs> any place that I just see a piano anywhere. I remember, what was it, the IMA or Newfields did a couple summers ago in the gardens. They just put random pianos all over the place and painted them up and... There's nothing more fun than either playing on them or just watching people just come up to them and just have their own personal experience with either playing music, making noise, banging on keys or whatever. Like to me, I just think that's, I I love that. So those are my top two and I have three something, yeah, locally here. Favorite place to have, uh, to perform or to have your music played? Oh, um, you know, I really like State Street Pub. Uh, <laughs> that's like my. That's like one of my favorite places to play, and uh, you know I have a had. We've had chamber groups in there. We did Steve Reich four organs a couple years ago, and a couple other pieces, and it's fun. I don't know. I like playing in bars. Same weirdly, I was lucky lucky enough to play at the Indiana Roof Ballroom with a big big band, a jazz big band, and I was on piano, and it was really fun. It was, like, the most fun night ever. I love that, like, when people can just dance, and, like, I get to entertain them, and I, I wasn't even drunk that night, and it was fun. <laughs> Honestly. I was so sober. It was great. But, yeah, alcohol with, with music is a cool thing. Yeah. Uh, it, not a fun play. I'm, I'm oh, I can't do it if yeah. I'm playing. Not no, a no, no, no. We have a, a one-beer limit, and then tipsy fingers are not... That's not where it's at that's for me. That's me too. I can't, I, I can't one do beer, it. Yeah. Yeah. That's my limit. I get meat hands. I call them. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, can you play? I'm like, no, I'm drunk. It's my Friday too. Shit. No, I'm not playing. No. We had one more question in the back. Spend four years learning about the genre. <laughs> Major in it in college. Your time starts now. <laughs> what can they do for us to make us an easier collaboration between classical and non-classical? I liked the idea. I still haven't been to that classical jam. I'm going to go later this month. I'm so ready for that. Like, leave a space once a week to have something classical related. That would be awesome because a lot of classical people don't feel like they could come to a venue like this and share their music so I feel like every venue should have a classical or jazz thing once a week at least that seems reasonable yeah. um I kind of think you know just being being open to like a, a very awkward almost date-like process of translation when you're first starting a working relationship so like 
you know, being open to like if like if I say a word that you don't know, just like being like, yo, I don't know what that means, and like and being open to saying that and admitting that rather than getting down the road and being in two different spaces eventually. Um, so I think open communication. I mean, a lot of music. I feel like I I just think music is personal relationships a lot of times, especially when you're working with people. So like. Uh, communication is like the most important thing probably when I when I when I'm working with people who are not familiar with what I do as a classical musician I would say um, in addition to making a space for us and um, open line of communication I'm always the last to be convinced that people actually give a shit about <laughs> classical music I, I really am even though I know that they do, because I have yet to have a concert or performance ends where people aren't like, oh my God, and they don't have to understand, and they will tell me, I didn't understand a single thing you did, but but there was, but it can't be articulated, and I think that's cool. So I think the thing that the community in general, within and outside of the music community, can do for us is sign up to get information on email sheets from a classical music indie or a classical revolution that they have at the Chatterbox on the first, Tuesday of every month, I'm trying to like plug and tag all these things. But then also amongst your circle of friends that are on social media and everything else, whether it's your shit or not, just be like, yo, here is a person who plays said instrument and this is how you can get a hold of them. This is a video clip of them playing or I, I post a lot, I use my social media platform almost strictly, 99% strictly, just for arts and cultural information and it's almost always centered on the work that I do. And so sometimes it's me practicing myself. Sometimes it's a piece that I find on YouTube and I'm just like, go listen to this. And I'm giving you the entire history. Share that stuff because that's how people who have that understanding and that desire to say, hey, I'm a, I'm a bluegrass folk person, but I've got everything but you know, the violinist or the fiddler or whatever else. That's the only way that we get to have our worlds kind of become concentric circles. So more than the money, Share our names, share our music, share the composers, share the other works that are out there. Because it's really, we're gonna do what we wanna do anyway, and we're going to. Other artists and other genres, they're not gonna incorporate us in our stuff if they don't know who we are, what we look like, what we sound like, right? And so it's gotta be that, that very, we have to meet each other a little bit more than halfway. And all classical music isn't boring. And guess what? You're hiring or you're working with a classical musician. We didn't say we have to do classical music. We didn't say that. We did not say that at all. We said we can play with you. You tell us what you want to do. And if the visions align, and again, this goes back to knowing who your partner is comprehensively, we can play anything. You know? That, that's, that's what I think. Um, oh, man, I had a thought and lost it. Oh, okay. So I think the other thing is as a listener, uh, being honest with what you like and what you don't like. So, so many times I've seen audiences that are like, like afraid to say they don't like it because maybe they think they don't understand it. And it's like, yeah, like these, especially when it's like old, like old music being played, frankly, like some of that, some of that, some of that stuff like kind of sucks and it's still in the rep. So like, it's cool to be like, to like ex honestly expressing your opinions in a way that like we can like hear that and be like, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't even think of that. You know, I mean, as a composer, it's a little different. But as a performer, I've also felt like, you know, people who are who are comfortable speaking to you, even if they don't know anything about the music, will teach you something about like your aesthetic or how you're making your set that you probably wouldn't have thought of. Like, you know, like the order in which you put the pieces or something like, you know, because, you know, my dad's friend is going to go and be like, yeah, that third movement was a real snoozer. Um, and he probably wouldn't even know the word movement. He'd probably just be like, yeah, that one part was slow, huh? Um, <laughs> But like, but that kind of feedback is like really important, I think, to to help engage with with people that are not that haven't spent years of their life like you know questioning, well no like years of their life uh, dedicated to this music. <laughs> so I'm hearing communication, collaboration, maybe feeling like you're kind of going on an awkward first date. These are all things we might need if we want to really make collaborating between classical music and non-classical music really function. And as you can see, we have three really talented and really inspirational musicians up here. Andrew Marie Chandy, uh, Rob Funkhauser, Joshua Thompson. All of them are trying to make this collaboration a real thing in Indianapolis. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs>
So thank you for coming to hear us talk and hopefully you've gotten something a little bit more out of like what classical music is and how it's something that is, is, is reachable in the community in a way that you can, I mean, right after this conversation, these people are here, you can come and talk to them and maybe something will happen that you didn't know could happen before this conversation. So we're here with Classical Music Indie. Again, my name's Jennifer Rodriguez. I'm the Community Programs Assistant for Classical Music Indie. If you liked what we're talking about or if you want to learn more about it, we have some, uh, everything up here is free. You can sign up to be on our email list. We have note magazines, usually cost $12. Um, we have up to our newest one, all of them for free. So if any of them tickle your fancy, you can come and get those. Plenty of stickers, plenty of things to gain information more about Classical Music Indie and how classical music is relevant today. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer.